This episode of The First Mile is supported by Montaigne's Further Faster podcast. If you love The First Mile, you'll love Further Faster. It features interviews with some of the world's greatest ultra-athletes, climbers and adventurers about exploring the world's most extreme environments. We regularly listen to Further Faster for inspiration, and I would particularly recommend the episode with Jenny Tuff, where she talks about why she spends three weeks running through the mountains with just a backpack for company. Just search for Further Faster on the same podcast app that you found the first mile. Welcome to the first mile with Ash Bardwaj and Pip Stewart in which we learn how travel, adventure and storytelling can change you and the way you look at the world. In this episode, we meet British explorer Leveson Wood. After leaving the British Army, Lev made his name with television series including Walking the Nile, Walking the Himalayas and Arabia. He's an award-winning author and photographer, patron of many charities and even has his own Oliver Sweeney clothing line. But he's also the friend of one Mr. Ash Bardwaj. And Ash, I hear there's a funny story about how you know Lev. Well, the way Lev tells it, apparently it was during an event called Mr. Nottingham, which was something that happened in my first year at Nottingham University. And part of this competition involved me getting naked on stage. Uh, (laughs) And in doing so, I had to throw my shoes off. And apparently my shoe hit Lev in the face. And after the competition, he came up, handed me the shoe back and said Mr Nottingham your shoe Uh, so clearly he didn't hold it against me that I hit him in the face with the shoe and we've actually remained firm friends ever since what an incredible start to a friendship (laughs) Um, this is an awesome episode with some great stories and insights that Lev's never publicly shared before like why breaking his leg before special forces selection changed his life and the step-by-step process he used to go from sleeping on park benches to becoming a best-selling author If you enjoy this episode, please could you do a couple of things to help others find the first mile. Subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating or a review on your podcast app. It doesn't have to be long. But for now, please enjoy this conversation with Leveson Wood. Lev, welcome to the first mile. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on. Um, We're sat here in the living room, which is very different to many of the places you and I have hung out on our expeditions around the world. And I think there's probably no better person to answer this question. Lev, what is your philosophy of travel? And was there a specific experience you've had that helped formulate that philosophy? That's a very good question. I, you know, I've always been fascinated by by travel, about what it means, about what one as an individual can get out of it. Um, But I think my philosophy, particularly over the last decade... Um, as I've made this into my career, my lifestyle, um, has been trying to draw out positive stories of humanity from places that a lot of people would least expect it by going to places that are in the news often for the wrong reasons, places with a bad reputation, whether that's because of violence or crime or conflict or whatever it might be, um, but actually going to show what life is really there, and and showing the ground truth about these places. And I think I really got that idea simply by, on my early travels, being really reliant on the kindness of strangers, putting myself in, I suppose, quite vulnerable situations where I've travelled on a very, very tight budget with very little plan, 
other than an end goal, turning up and kind of hoping for the best. And realising that most people in the world are pretty good and, and will will look after you. And if, if there was one particular moment, it's probably on what I call my second gap year. I've had quite a few since then. Um, where after university, I'd, I'd been studying history, particularly actually the Great Overland Journeys. So I actually got to use it after university. I, I read all about the Grand Tour, about the big journeys across Asia, like Marco Polo, the Hippie Trail, all of these um, defining journeys that are really defined eras and um, I, th- I thought when I was at the age of 22 I, I really should put my money where my mouth is and decided to hitchhike um, the length of the Southern Silk Road to India uh, and that's what I did and I went through lots of places that were in the news for usually negative um, reasons Southern Russia the Caucasus um, places like Iran um, Afghanistan Pakistan Um, before I got to India and I remember being in Afghanistan this was back in 2004 and of course there was lots of uh, rumblings about the Taliban there was this was post 9-11 so this was two and a half three years after the American-led invasion that's right exactly exactly so um, I, I was you know backpacking through Afghanistan basically and I had next to no money whatsoever so I, I really had to um, put myself at the mercy of of the people that I met along the way. And actually, you know, I was looked after. And it was amazing to be taken in by these villagers and a lot of people who were quite heavily armed, you know, who, who looked after me. And it really stuck with me. And I, and I wanted to take that forward. And when I left the army a decade ago, and I decided that I was going to make my life all about travel, um, I thought that that was the enduring legacy that I wanted to leave behind and it's not about reckless risk-taking it's about having a positive outlook and a faith in human nature I love that love but like reading your bio is knackering I mean you've done some incredible things and I think so many people will be wondering how do you make a career out of this what would you say was your first mile in a sense to Mm. kind of getting to where you are now so I left the army in the spring of 2010 and I didn't know what I was going to do next I had no idea other than I knew I wanted to go and sort of bum around traveling for a little while and um, that's that's when Ash and I reconnected and Ash invited me out to go skiing in Switzerland for a little while did that and then you know I was just mulling over ideas and I was asked by a friend of mine who was setting up a charity in, in Malawi whether or not I'd be interested in helping out by delivering some ambulances. And that that first mile really came down to just saying yes to a lot of opportunities and, and, and really going out there and being open-minded and uh, and working hard to, to find a way of making it work. And um, so I agreed to somehow deliver two ambulances to a hospital in Malawi for, for the charity Amica. And I knew nothing about cars let alone ambulances I knew nothing about the charity world but I was good at project management because that's what the army teaches you very well and I knew I was you know I loved traveling I knew I loved the the idea of building a team so I said yeah I can make this happen and rather than doing the the fairly I suppose uh, sensible option of of buying ambulances sending them in a shipping container and, and doing it that way I thought why not just buy a couple of um, vehicles online on eBay and uh, do them up myself um, make sure they're, they're, they're good, they're roadworthy, they can carry medical supplies. I built a team, so I went around and asked all my friends if they'd take uh, you know, anything from a week all the way up to two months of leave from their jobs. A lot of guys in the army were able to do that at the time. 
And so I, I got 15 people all signed up to this trip. Not all at the same time. There's only five of us did the whole journey. And um, I did some fundraising. We managed to raise a, you know, a really good amount of money. And after a few months of preparation and planning, um, we set off and we drove 10,000 miles, 27 countries with a load of bunch of my best friends. And it was such an incredible experience, all in, you know, the name of a good cause. And, you know, the ambulances are still out there saving lives to this day. And I think that really was something that stuck with me in the sense that that was really good fun. And that cemented my desire to want to somehow make that a full time career. Now, obviously, when I was doing that, that was an unpaid thing. I, I pretty much invested all my money in just surviving, really. But I knew that the the way to sort of at least stay afloat was to learn new skills and be able to bring something to the party, whatever that may be. And, and the things that really interested me was was writing. I had no experience other than harking back to my university days of writing essays. But I thought, well, if I can go and do trips like this and write about them, whether that's for travel magazines, guidebooks, newspaper articles, whatever that may be, and, and make a name for myself that way, then that will at least cover costs. So that's what I did. So I started doing that. I ended up writing little pieces for, for things like Lonely Planet, um, various travel magazines, and most of them were not paid, or if they were, it was it was very low, you know, not very well paid at all. So then I thought, well, okay, well, I need to teach myself photography. So I, you know, I invested whatever little meagre funds I had saved over from the army and bought myself a, a really nice camera. And I'll never forget, it was brand new. I went, I went out to Mexico um, to go and see my girlfriend at the time. And uh, I think it was on day three that all of my brand new camera equipment got nicked. Oh, bugger. <laughs> Lost everything. And, uh, uh, and it wasn't insured. That was embarrassing. Oh, ouch. So there was a lesson in there thing. somewhere. <laughs> but I think it's about giving yourself a repertoire of skills, being prepared to do the hard yards in the early days. And, you, you know, inevitably in, in that sort of industry, you do have to do a lot of work for free. You know, that's just the way it goes. Um, but you, you do that, you get yourself published. That, that's a really important thing. Get yourself published in any which way. I submitted my photos to every kind of competition, even little ones that nobody's ever heard of, but it doesn't matter. You've just got to get, get your name out there somehow. And, and it was through doing that. Did you win any competitions? I did. I won, I won a couple of little competitions. It was the, the Stoke-on-Trent Photographer of the Year <laughs> Award. Um, I'd submitted a few of my photos to the Army Mountaineering Association and, and, you know, little things like that. But you need to win a few and the ball starts rolling. And you get confidence and you say, okay, well, I'm, I'm not very good. I've got absolutely no training in any of this. But um, as they say in the army, no cuff too tough. And before you know it, actually, you do become good and you, you do learn all of the skills that you need. That um, And it was doing that combined with trying to make money. And I ended up with a mate of mine. We ended up setting up a, a little company called Secret Compass, which... The idea was to replicate the success of the ambulance trip, but to do it as a commercial venture. So we thought, why not use our skills of project management, of expedition leadership, with the USP of being you know, ex-army officers and bringing the, that sense of real adventure to a civilian market uh, and going to pretty wild places. And we thought, well, there's lots of adventure travel companies out there already. What can we do that's different? So we thought, well, why not take people to conflict zones or post-conflict zones, um, but in doing it in a safe measured manner so that's what we did in our flagship expedition was riding horses to the source of the oxus river in afghanistan over the um the pamir mountains we went um mountain uh climbing and skiing in uh northeastern iraq 
We took camels across Sudan. We went whitewater rafting in South Sudan. We walked across Madagascar. So all of these quite remarkable journeys, but but can, you can fit into two or three weeks. And uh, it was really good fun. And that really laid the foundations for learning how to do things on a professional level. You have to get the right insurance. You have to know how to market yourself and market the company and branding and all this stuff that I had no clue about whatsoever. You learn pretty quickly. And I think I learned more in that sort of couple of years doing that and and going down lots of dead ends, making lots of mistakes than anyone would ever do doing an MBA or or anything like that. What kind of mistakes did you make, Lev? Well, just, you know, like I had to learn everything. Bear in mind, I'd come from, you know, fighting in Afghanistan in the army as a paratrooper to picking colours off off the Pantone colour palette for for the for the, my logo for my company logo and um, designing websites and you know it was all really really bad I have to say it was all pretty naff in the early days um, and so you do make lots of mistakes we ended up um, I think the, the whoever was making our website tried to rip us off and we ended up trying to take them to court for something like 500 pounds. I mean, it's laughable now when I look back, but um, you do, you learn a lot. I remember that. I remember that phase. (laughs) But, um, you know, every penny counted and we, you know, we didn't pay ourselves for about two years. And so I was basically crashing on friends' floors. I would crash on your floor on more than one occasion, didn't I? You know, I couldn't afford to, to, to rent, certainly not in London. So the way I kept afloat was by just keep going away on expeditions. So I did. I'd go away for three weeks. I'd come back for four or five days and go away for another two weeks. And I, I managed to keep this up for about two and a half, three years. And I had a, an unwritten rule, which I actually learned in India in Amritsar. And it goes back to the Sikh philosophy is you should always provide hospitality for free to any stranger for three days. And I'd found the same replicated in Pakistan in Afghanistan and all along my Silk Road travels. And, I, and you know, and I remember staying in Amritsar in the Gurdwara in the Holy Temple um, for three nights and after that they sort of ask you to disappear off and I thought well that's a, it's a very nice um, mentality and so that's what I, I, I decided that if anyone offered me hospitality in London I would stay for three nights and even if they insisted on me staying longer I would say no and leave and that often resulted in me having to go and sleep on a park bench on Clapham Common seriously seriously yeah and there were plenty of nights like that but I, I stuck rigidly to those rules and I think as a result I didn't alienate too many friends Ash are you still friends with Lev? <laughs> Well, How would you say that went for you? I did never kick him out uh, and force him to go and sleep on a park bench. Although I do remember us once going to Inferno's and I refused to go in because it was so bad. So I <laughs> went and slept on a park bench in Clapham Common. Um, did you plan to leave the army or did you consider having a career? And at what point did you set a path to where you're at now? Well, when I joined the army back in 2005... I, I was, uh, you know, I went in open-minded. I'd done, like I said, I'd already done a couple of years of traveling anyway. I wanted to go and get as much experience as I could. And, I, you know, I did my five years and, and I got to the point in my career where I'd, I'd been to Afghanistan. I think had I been, had the opportunity to spend more time posted overseas, which is ultimately why I joined the army, then I probably would have stayed a bit longer. But it became apparent that actually to to stay in the army does require an enormous amount of personal sacrifice in terms of not having much say where you live um, or indeed in, in what jobs you get. And, and, and I, I have to say, wasn't um, over the moon as to some of the postings that I got. And I got sent up to Catrick where I was training recruits, which, you know, is, is, a, is a job that he's doing, but it wasn't one that I wanted to be doing. And so I just got to the point in my career where I wanted a bit more freedom. I wanted to have... Uh, an element of control over my own life. And also, I wanted to be able to 
express myself more creatively and do things that that I really um, enjoy doing, like like writing and and so on. And weren't you considering going into the SF at some point? Was that was the choice to do that? Did that have a guys? Big what impact? is SF? <laughs> oh, sorry, so, I, I'm not army. What, what are you on about? Um, <laughs> considering going to join the elite special forces Thank of the you. army and. Yeah, I know I, I was actually. I mean, I've got a quite a funny story. I was I was actually going to go on special forces selection, and I'd passed all the pre briefing courses and things like that. And I remember it. It was it was exactly ten years ago, almost to the month actually. I was I was meant to be going in January um, twenty ten, and so I'd done all of this training, and I was really very physically fit, and I'd done all the the, the required reading and homework, and and I went off for Christmas leave uh, in December. 2009 and went off to see my girlfriend at the time um in mexico and um i remember one one day just it was i think it was just after christmas her family had a big big sort of ranch and her brother-in-law invited me to do rodeo on a, on a horse and i <laughs> stupidly said yes and the inevitable happened the horse threw me over an eight foot wall and i broke my leg so <laughs> you know a few days later i hobbled back into um the the barracks with on, on crutches with a broken leg and um and said look pff, obviously i can't go on selection now um and they said well look the next opportunity probably isn't going to be for 12 months maybe even 18 months wow so and and the, the problem was at this stage all the good jobs had been, already been given away to all the other officers who were then preparing for another tour of Afghanistan back in the regular unit. So I was going to be stuck with a pretty naff job. And so I said, okay, well, the fate has taken its turn and, and I'm, I'm going to leave. But it's amazing to think that that turn of fate, mm. you could have ended up doing something completely different. And do you reflect much on these turns of mm. fate and the way things have, could have gone in very different paths? Well, you know, one of the... Um, one of the books on the Sandhurst reading list is by um, the, the Viscount Bill Slim. He was a commander in the Second World War. And the book is entitled Defeat into Victory. And I like that because if you, if you look at every defeat as an opportunity to do something else and potentially something better, then you can't really go wrong. And I remember thinking at the time I was pretty miserable, the fact that I'd blown my chance and I'd got a broken leg and I thought, what am I going to do next? I just thought, OK, I've just got to stay positive and... Actually, if I go out there and do something, and I think that gave me the motivation and the real drive to make a go of myself in a completely different sphere. And so I thought, well, that's the time. And so while I was sat there with my busted leg, I, I sort of sat down with a, with a pen of paper and literally wrote out a five-year plan, um, what I was going to do between you know 2010 and 2015. And it was kind of aspirational at that stage. And I wrote a wish list of potential jobs that I might like, potential outputs in terms of, well, I, I'd always fancied the idea of writing a book ever since I was a kid, learning photography, um, and then some sort of wild cards as well. I was like, well, actually, do I, you know, should I consider joining an organization like the UN or, or joining a charity? And I thought, so I wrote down this wish list. I wrote down what I was good at, what my resources were at the time. And you'll know this, Ash, the seven questions, which is a tried and tested method of planning for either an operation or a mission. And I kind of tried to adopt the same approach, but for well, basically for a career. And it kind of worked, actually. And it gave me some real, really good ideas as to how to actually plan and, and making things goal-driven. So rather than being overwhelmed at the choice or overwhelmed at um, what might go wrong or overwhelmed at the competition, 
out there. You know, I sort of look out and said, right, who, who, the kind of figures, the, the, the people out there that I admire, people who've done great things, people like, you know, Attenborough, um, people like Michael Palin or, or, or some great explorers out there. I thought, well, I, the aspiration, if I can replicate what they've done, how did they do it? So I looked at their careers. I looked for templates. I looked for people that I could get advice from. And I formulated over the course of a few weeks um, a really quite well-structured plan giving myself options of how to get to these stages. And I worked backwards. I said, right, by the end of the fifth year, I want to have achieved X, Y, and Z. And that X, Y, and Z consists, I want to have written um, three books by, uh, by, you know, by year five. And I want to have earned X amount of money so that I can put down a deposit for a house. And then work backwards. Okay, so well, by year four, I should have written two books. And by year three, I should have written one book. So I therefore gave myself three years to write a book, which when you work it backwards like that, it suddenly becomes much more manageable. And by doing that process and having faith in the process, because I think it's really important, you've got to believe that it's going to work, even if it's complete self-delusion, I suddenly had worked out what I was going to do for the next five years. And that's what I did. I, I followed it almost to the letter, give or take six months here or one year there. And it actually gave me a really good, guideline and uh, structure to be able to see that clear light at the end of the tunnel and what I wanted to do and how I was going to do it. Lev, I'm someone who literally has no structure. This five-year <laughs> plan thing, I'm like, what the hell is this? Um, but massively inspiring. But what are those seven questions for people like me and anyone listening at home who's like, tell <laughs> us what they are? What are those seven questions? Well, I won't bore you with the full details because it, it can be, you, you, this is a whole book unto itself. And, um, and funnily enough, I might be writing one over the next coming months that, that will help people on their own journey, because that's something I'd, I'd like to do and explain in a lot more detail as to, as to how to formulate a plan. I will definitely be buying that. <laughs> um, but ultimately, it's about being mission orientated. So what is the end state? You've got to forecast and, and visualize your own mind where you want to be. And that can just be a sentence. I want to be whatever, a famous author or uh, an accomplished, you know, TV presenter or whatever it might be. Mine wasn't actually any of those. It was simply I wanted to have written a book, earned a certain amount of money in order to, you know, have a, I wanted a kind of stable um, income. I wanted to make sure that I could go on fun and cool adventures, but also make a living out of it. But then working backwards and, and simply breaking it down into manageable chunks so that it doesn't become overwhelming. And, you know, I, I could bore you to death with that, and uh, maybe I will in, in 12 months' time, but, but watch this space. I will be hopefully putting something out there which will help others do this. What were the specific steps that led you to television? Because talking about the, uh, the seven questions and having this vision, I doubt that was in there. It, I mean, it wasn't in there from what you just said. So how did that happen? And do you think that is replicable, or do you think that is a, a thing that requires more than just planning how did it work for you well do you want the long story or the short story <laughs> i'll never forget what you once told me ash the uh you remember the touched by an angel theory in, in our early years i used to just sit there drinking brandy or something quite random with lev uh, coming up with little mottos every now and again that we would use like this was career development in 2012 <laughs> well yeah and it but it stuck with me actually and uh, i've got ash to thank for for a lot of these tidbits of knowledge because the touch by an angel theory is like some people want to hear a long hard truth of the matter which is a, you know takes 10 years to be an overnight success etc 
and uh, some people would rather they they hear the touch by an angel theory, which is that oh, you know, I was walking down the street, I got a tap on the shoulder from a from a film director, and he said, "Do you want to be on TV?" Most people prefer that because it then gives them an excuse as to why they haven't achieved that. It gives them an excuse as to why they weren't quite so lucky. And of course, luck and and good fortune are, are a part of. Um, success but also um, <laughs> behind the scenes there's a lot of hard work that goes into it for me I never intended to be on television that wasn't certainly wasn't part of the plan but when it the, the opportunity popped up I of course thought you know considered whether or not this would be beneficial to my long-term goal and, and thought actually my long-term goal is to write a book certainly can't do any harm being on the TV uh, the way that TV opportunity came around was when I'd set up this travel company, Secret Compass, and we led you know, dozens of expeditions all around the world, we did get the tap on the shoulder in the form of a phone call from um, initially very small media outlets. And it was, I think the first one we ever did was from random Dutch production company who wanted us to teach one of their presenters how to skin a rabbit. But then the next one was actually, can you take our director out to South Sudan? Because we'd already been to South Sudan on an expedition to take to look after a presenter and make sure the film crew were safe. And then it sort of grew and grew and grew. And then before we knew it, we were taking Channel 4, the BBC, Discovery Channel, as location managers, as health and safety consultants, because that's basically what we were trained as in the army and making sure that their crews were safe on the ground. And that all, of course, is a result of having spent five years in the Paras. So that, you know, you can... You Paras can, is the parachute regiment the parachute of the British regiment. Army. Yeah, uh, so you can work it back quite a long way. But ultimately, TV came out as a result of me being very much behind the camera. But whilst being there, looking after people and making sure that, you know, the donkeys arrived on time and making sure that everyone got fed, you pick up certain things. You learn the language of television. You learn the names of directors. You get people's email addresses. And you suddenly become in a quite a privileged position whereby you can make some phone calls and, and pitch a few ideas. But actually, it was the relationships that you build more than anything. And as long as you do your job, you keep people safe, and you're a decent person to be around, actually, you will get invited onto more and more of these sorts of um, projects. That's what happened with me. And one, one day, a director said to me, look, you know, we've worked together on all these projects. How about we film one of your expeditions? Do you have any ideas? And I had, you know, I'd been bubbling around with this idea of walking the Nile for a few months already. And I suggested it to him and we took it to a production company. The production company took it to the broadcasters. And eventually, after much gnashing of teeth and faffing around, it finally got commissioned. But that wasn't until about two years later. What's particularly funny about this story is I've heard people within television saying things like, well, it was so obvious when Lev turned up with the idea of walking the Nile, we had to commission it immediately. What they forget to tell you is that it got turned down lots of times (laughs) by lots of people. And it even got commissioned and then decommissioned by one particular broadcaster before Channel 4 eventually picked it up. Um, And it it was a lot of persistence. There was a lot of... Uh, you know, at this stage, this was these were during my sort of homeless days when I was, you know, sleeping on park benches. I then just decided to put all my eggs in one basket and said, you know what, with or without TV, I'm going to go and do this journey. And even if it involves me going to the bank and taking out a loan for a for a for a car or something, and then taking that to go and spend on the trip, I would go and do it. You know, I wanted to go and make sure I did this journey and prove to people that it was possible, even though everybody told me that it wasn't wasn't. And uh, I think it was only then, right when I'd literally put everything on the line, that people really appreciated that I was being serious about it. And then suddenly it all fell into place and it kind of 
snowballed from there. How how close were you to quitting in that run up to it? And how did how did that feel at the time? You know, at the time I was frustrated with how slow things seemed to be proceeding. I was frustrated with what I perceived to be my own lack of success. I'd been plugging away. I'd been like trying to get a book commissioned. Everybody said no. Everyone was saying no. You know, I was I was building very slowly this little company and that was going all right, but that wasn't my dream. My dream was to to do my own big project and to to write a book and and so yeah, there were there were lots of times when I really questioned myself and it knocked my confidence and I was really thinking, is this the right decision? But I think I was I had enough energy to to get me through that. You know, I was whatever, twenty nine, thirty years old and I think I just thought, you know what, I can't not do this. I've got to really do it. I've got to really see it through, even if it involves me setting off and then one week later, um, you know, getting snapped up by a crocodile. I've just got to go and do it. And I was that determined to at least try. I had no idea whether or not it was going to be a success, you know, whether or not I was going to be able to walk for four and a half thousand miles or whether or not indeed the, even if we did film it and came back in one piece, whether or not anyone would be interested in watching me walk across Africa. Luckily, it, it all sort of panned out for the, for the best in the end. What gave you that like innate confidence though, Lev? Because it's one thing to say you felt in a bad place and there's another to say, do you know what? sod it, I'm going to pull myself together and just go for a walk. I think that's quite unusual. I think it was probably a combination of having spent, you know, a good few years in the, in the army, in the parachute regiment, which does really instill in you a sense of determination and confidence to succeed where others might fail. There's probably a, an, an element of pride in there. You know, I'd already said to people I was going to do it, therefore I had to go and do it. I wasn't going to back out. Um, but also going back to my early travels before I did any of that, it was just that faith that actually, what's the worst that can happen? I'll probably just get taken in by lots of really nice people along the way. Mm-hmm. And I'm intrigued as well, because obviously what you've done has been so commercially successful in one sense. But do you ever find there's a balance between commercial success and doing what you love? Absolutely. You know, it's really important to have integrity if you want to play the long game. Because I've had lots of opportunities come in where it would have been very easy to sell out. Um, but I had my own idea of what I'm about and what I wanted, you know, my career to look like. And so I've turned down some really quite lucrative commercial opportunities because they didn't really fit within my own ethos. And so I think that's important. You've got to st- even if even if you're tempted, you've got to really stick to your guns on certain things. And, what sort of thing would you turn down? You um, I probably shouldn't say too much about certain brands or companies, but, you know, just doing adverts for companies that don't really align with your own values. Um, doing the kind of shows and programs that I thought were already saturated in that genre anyway. And, you know, it, it, it was really about having a vision for the future, about sticking to your guns and having integrity. And that goes in, in any field. Did you enjoy walking the Nile? Was it still the kind of travel <laughs> that you enjoyed? Um, I enjoyed parts of it. I'd say... I enjoyed about 40% of it. The other 60% was hard work, brutal, uh, tragic, awful, and just downright dull, actually. You know, no, I didn't enjoy all of it. I enjoyed some of it. And I knew that. I knew it wasn't going to be easy. I knew that there'd be some incredibly long stretches of monotony, of boredom, um, of, of questioning my own motivation and, and sometimes sanity. Um, but that's fine. You know, you, nothing in life comes free. There's always sacrifices and, and a price to pay. And that was it. I, I knew it was going to be the hardest thing I ever did. And, and it, it was. 
as well as turning an idea into reality, getting it over the line and bringing people along with you, that's, that's a pretty remarkable skill. Um, you're also a very good communicator about traveling and about adventure. Who inspired you? I mean, you mentioned Palin and Attenborough earlier on, but what specific skills did you try and learn or emulate in writing and when you ended up doing TV presenting? So I had no formal training in, in television or writing. So it was just a case of, like you say, emulating those people that you admire yourself. The only problem that I had was that the people that I'd read, whether that was at university or, or books, tended to be people that were either dead by about 150 years or um, it, it was the kind of that kind of travel, that style of travel that has been out of vogue for a very long time. So you can't write like a Victorian explorer anymore because people won't read it. You can't um, travel in the way that someone like Eric Newby did in the 1950s anymore because th- times have moved on, times have changed. But it was a, it was kind of the, my style, if that's what we're kind of alluding to here, was, was look, people often sort of say, oh, you know, you're, a, you're another white male who's got, you know, born with a silver spoon in his mouth. And, and I can see where that criticism might be leveled from. But the truth is, you know, I, I grew up in, in Stoke-on-Trent um, in, in a relatively, you know, poor family we you know i was i didn't know anyone who'd traveled really you know certainly the concept of a gap year was anathema to not only my parents but all of my friends family and pretty much the whole city frankly so to say i was going to go and do something like that really did quite go against the grain but the inspiration for me came across that that from those heroes of travel almost certainly my heroes of travel from another era and i can i can see why that sort of has gone out of vogue in in modern modern times but I think what I'd like to think is that I try and cherry pick some of the best bits that go back from the golden age of travel, but also looking at current affairs, looking at what is the kind of world that we live in now. So I suppose it's a, it's a mixture of, of adventure, of exploration, which I use very um, sparingly because exploration in the modern world I don't, don't think is the same as what it used to be. Exploration in the modern world is about, for me at least, documenting a moment in time, showing how things are changing, and also using all of that, using that platform, using that, that methodology to highlight some really important causes. And that is what I've really enjoyed the most. Um, is doing, trying to do what, what people like Attenborough have done, what people like Palin and Sir Ronald Fiennes have done, is using their voice to highlight really important issues. And for me, that is things like climate change. It's things about deforestation. It's about um, lots of things ranging from elephant conservation to um, the, the human population boom. Lev, I was reading that you're very disciplined when it comes to writing. Is that right? And what do you do? Well, I I try to just literally do nine to five. I don't like the idea of staying up till midnight or four in the morning and getting writer's block. I, I very much see that as a luxury. I like to just sit down and treat it as a normal working day and at five or six o'clock, whatever it might be, put the pen down, go out for a meal, go out for a drink, see, see my mates. And that way, if you, if you can guarantee yourself 3,000 or 4,000 words a day, and the, the, the real important part of writing is is to not be precious. You're not allowed to be a perfectionist when, it, when you're writing. Just write any old crap. You know, write 4,000 words, even if it's utterly 
rubbish because you can always come back and edit. Just get the words down, get the work count done, and just everything is in the edit. Go back to the start, comb through it, go back to the start, do that three or four times, and by the time you're finished, something will be good. Super sound advice. I'm going to steal some of that. Thanks, Lev. <laughs> um, we've got some rapid-fire questions for you. Um, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were starting out? I think it would have been what I mentioned about learning those new skills. I think if I had maybe gone on a course in photography or learnt um, how to write properly, perhaps when I was in the army or when I was at, at university, um, learning specific skills. Because if you are multifaceted, if you can go out there and be a reasonable photographer, a good writer, and know which way a video camera points, you're suddenly not just labelled as one thing. You can you can bring a lot to the party. So it's about bringing lots of different skills to the party and therefore saving somebody else who might employ you money. Um, do you have any recommendations of books, films, podcasts or other resources that people can dig into to find out a little bit more about some of the things you've been talking about? Um, can I mention my own six books that you, I've written? You can indeed, Lev. <laughs> okay. Um, I probably, if I can give a massive plug to my um, latest travel book, which is um, Arabia, just because I think that for me, whether or not you're interested in the Middle East or not, gives a reasonable idea of where my own mentality and thoughts and ideas came from and also about how to structure a, a travel book and make it work in the form of you don't want to write just a simple travel narrative like a diary because you know frankly nobody cares what you've had for breakfast it's about how do you tell a story in a, in, in 300 and something pages that people want to read and uh you know i got my own inspiration from from reading the classics you know homer's odyssey start there start where it all began Although I have to say that your most classic book of the ones that you've written, the one that feels the most classic is Walking the Himalayas. Yeah. It's the one that feels more like a newbie type book. Is that because you're in it, Ash? Well, I, mean, <laughs> I, 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 don't, I, I don't really the cover myself in glory. <laughs> I don't really cover myself in glory in my appearance in Walking the Himalayas. But, but I think the way it's written is much is classic. Okay. Yeah. Um, what would you do now if you weren't doing what you do? Okay, so maybe let's say if I couldn't travel anymore for whatever reason and I was sort of stuck at home. I, you know what I've always wanted to be ever since I was a kid was an artist. I'd, I'd love to, you know, if, if I had to start it all again, I wasn't allowed to do what I'm doing now, then I, I would go and be a painter or, or draw things. I've seen your artwork, Lev. It's very good. Thank Explorers you. I, against I, I occasionally get, get the chance to sort of do some amateur efforts. Um, and finally, is there a place that you'd love to return to? Well, I often go back to Nepal. That's a country that I fell in love with when I was 18 or 19, when I first went there. I've been back many times since. Um, I'm going back again next year. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a very warm, friendly, hospitable place with, you know, incredible culture and, you know, sublime views. What is a tool or technique that helped you along your journey, whether that's a career journey or one of the physical journeys, when things were not going well? Oh, that's a very good question. I think in terms of a technique, for me, it's always been a case of reminding myself just how lucky I am, whether that's when I'm crossing the Sahara Desert and I know that I've got months ahead of me or, or I'm freezing cold and, and I'm sleeping outside or whatever it might be and I'm thinking, I really don't want to be here. I just think, you know what, actually, I'm pretty lucky to be able to get to do what I do and, uh, and not really have to have a real job, I suppose. And, and that is a big motivator. And, and it, I've always used that when I'm struggling to write or when I'm struggling to 
you know, edit a book or whether I'm on top of a mountain or whatever it might be, I always remind myself that actually I'm very, very privileged to do what I do. And it's it's my duty and an obligation to to continue, I suppose, and, and share my journeys with people who are less fortunate. Love. Thank you so much for talking to us today. And are there any sort of projects that you're working on and how can our listeners keep in touch with you? Uh, lots of projects. Yeah, busy year coming up. Um, I think, you know, all the stuff that I... Um, you know, what I'm doing is covered on Twitter and Instagram, so you can follow me on there, levison.wood. Um, and I'll be, yeah, releasing some new material soon. I've got a, a photography book coming out next year as well, which is a sort of compilation of basically from the last 15 years of travels. Thanks very much for coming on to the first mile, mate. It's been really good chatting with you. Thank you very much for having me. I'd forgotten the touch by an angel theory. <laughs> and. Uh, It was very good to hear it at this time, I think. I'm so writing a five-year plan. (laughs) Thanks for listening to that episode of The First Mile. We've really enjoyed making this show and we'd love it if more people could hear it. So if you have enjoyed that episode, please could you do a couple of things to help others find The First Mile? Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a rating or a review on your podcast app. It really doesn't have to be long. Send the link to this episode to a friend who might be interested or simply take a screenshot of this episode and share it on social media. Make sure you tag us in it at Ash Bardwaj and at Pip Stewart. Then go and put your feet up with a nice cup of tea. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on The First Mile. This episode of The First Mile was supported by Montaigne's Further Faster podcast. Each episode of Further Faster is packed with inspiration and insight about extreme exploration and adventure, and we listen to it whenever we want to blow our minds about what's possible. Just search for Further Faster on your podcast app to find it.